Welcome to another life-impacting message from City Light Church, North Adelaide. You can find more great things like this at citylight.church slash North Adelaide. The next reading is Mark 8, verses 27 to 913. Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. On the way, he asked them, why do people say I am? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked? Who do you say I am? Peter answered, You are the Messiah. Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. When Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, Whoever wants me to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. And then 9. And he said to them, Truly I tell you, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God has come with power. After six days, Jesus took Peter, James and John with him and led them up a high mountain where they were all alone. There he transfigured before them. His clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone could could bleach them. And And there appeared before them Elijah and Moses, who were talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He did not know what to say. They were so frightened. Then a cloud appeared and covered them, and a voice came from the cloud. This is my son, whom I love. Listen to him. Suddenly, when they looked around, they no longer saw anyone with them except Jesus. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus gave them orders not to tell anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. They kept the matter to themselves, discussing what rising from the dead meant. And then they asked him, Why why do the teachers of the law say that Elijah must come first? Jesus replied, To be sure, Elijah does come first and restores all things. Why then is it written that the Son of Man must suffer much and be rejected? But I tell you, Elijah has come, and they have done to him everything they wished, just as as it is written about him. Thanks very much. Nick, Uh, good morning, everyone. It's nice to see you. Um, Please keep Mark, uh, that Mark reading open in front of you, Mark 8.27 through to 9.13. That would be good to do. Um, If you don't know who I am, I'm Simon uh, Jacko, lead pastor here. It's nice to see you. Um, We are starting a new series, uh, Servant King, The Good News According to Mark. Um, I don't know if you uh, remember back to last year, most people, some people are probably forgetting about 2020, um, but last year we we tackled Mark sort of one to eight. Um, Part of that was sort of online when we were doing church online and we finished it off sort of in person. Uh, We went through Mark 1 to 8 which was really answering the question who is Jesus and we kind of get to the answer of that today Um, and the second half of Mark which is what we're doing now uh, today starting today uh, and we're going to land in Mark 16 on um, Easter Sunday which is 10 weeks away. 
Um, so I don't know, start gathering the eggs and hot cross buns and things like that already. Um, I did notice like that hot cross buns are on sale like the day after Christmas, um, which I think is wonderful. I love hot cross buns. No, um, some people don't think that's a great thing, but. Uh, Anyway, um, so we're Mark 9 uh, through to 16, and so Good Friday uh, we'll land in the passion of the Christ, so when Jesus, the Son of God, lays down his life for the sins of the world, Mark 16 is the, the wonderful reality of the resurrection, and that's where we get to Easter Sunday. So 10 weeks, Mark 9 through 16. Um, and uh, that's where we are. If you are um, here today and perhaps you're you wouldn't call yourself a follower of Jesus and you're ex- perhaps you're here today and you're exploring who Christ is. Um, we've just got a whole bunch of resources that are free and available to you and, and maybe you're here today and you know people who um, are searching and would do well to have some information or some access to resources. So up on the back table, um, there's a whole bunch of these, uh, copies of Mark's Gospel. Um, it's just the Gospel um, as we get it in the Scriptures. Um, they're free, take them if you want to give it to a friend. Take it if you're exploring Christ. Uh, that's the great place to meet him. There's also a few other resources there. There's a book called A Fresh Start by um, an Australian guy. He's no longer with us, uh, John Chapman, one of Australia's greatest evangelists. And he's written a book called A Fresh Start, which kind of explores the person, the work, the beauty, the truth of Jesus. Um, if you're here today and you're exploring who he is um, and then there's a couple of other resources there about, you know, so maybe you are just, you've just turned to Christ and you ex- want to know what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Um, there's a book up the back on the table called What Do I Do Now That I'm a Christian? Um, that's a really helpful little book. Um, book about, you know, if you're a Christ- uh, you've become a Christian, you want to get baptised, why should I get baptised? Um, there's also another book, I think it's something to do with starting, I forget the name of it. Um, Again, a book about just helping you find your feet as a Christian. Um, Obviously, we as a church want to help you do that, um, but there's some great resources there for you to tackle, to get your teeth into. Anyway, have a look after um, the, the formal part of our time together. Let's pray. Let's pray. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thanks for your goodness to us. And thank you that you have not remained silent, but you've spoken to us through the, through the law, through the prophets, and ultimately through your son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who we meet in the gospel. Father, we pray that today, as we think about Mark 8, 27, and this section before us, that, Father, by your spirit and through your word, you'd help us to see, hear, and love Jesus. And we pray that... In all that we do and think this morning, uh, you'd be honoured and glorified. Um, And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Um, I've probably never mentioned this before. I don't know if I've mentioned it before. Um, But the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, are the founding texts of Christianity. Uh, They are the foundations. I don't know if I've ever said that before. They are the foundation texts for Christianity. And it makes all the difference Um, having those four documents as the founding texts. Um, If you think about it, right, the book of Revelation, the last book of the Bible, if that, if you believe that Revelation is the founding text of Christianity, it's going to change how you read all of Scripture. Um, If you think the book of James, which is one of my favourite books of the Bible, if you think James is the founding text of the Bible, uh, of Christianity, then that'll change how you read all of Scripture. If you think the Gospels are the founding texts of Christianity, then that will shape how you read the whole Bible. If that's true, right, that the Gospels are the foundational texts of Christianity, then our passage today, Mark 8, 27 through to 9, 13, 
is the heart of the foundation because it's at the very center of Mark's gospel. There's a little picture here, right, coming up on the screen. There you go. Um, If Mark was like a scroll, right, on one big piece of papyri, like a long scroll, and you, you know, rolled it out on the floor, and then if, I don't know, Michael and Naomi stood at either end and they folded the scroll in half, the line right down the middle would fall right in the middle of the passage we had read today. It's right at the center. Um, So you'd expect, right, that if this was right at the center of the gospel, this passage would have some absolute crackers in it, like some pearls in it. And indeed, Mark fits into these paragraphs that we're looking at today, four of the most important things you will ever hear about the Christian faith. We learn in this section four things. Here they are. We learn the identity of the Messiah. We learn the, uh, and, and something actually, we learn, we learn the identity of the Messiah. It's something that's been known right from the very beginning of Mark, Mark 1.1. But no one in the narrative has worked out who Jesus actually is at this point. So we learn the identity of the Messiah. Second thing is we learn the mission of the Messiah, that he's come not to conquer the enemies of God, but to suffer for them and to save them. We learn what following the Messiah is all about, um, not taking up arms, but bearing a cross. And we learn the centrality of the Messiah, that Jesus is the one whom the entire law and the prophets of the Old Testament point to. Let's take each one of these in turn, the identity of the Messiah. Um, At this point in the Gospel of Mark, the narrative of Jesus' life that we have in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus has been preaching and teaching and healing for about 18 months when we come to Mark chapter 8, verse 27. And the interesting thing about the story of Mark, the way he tells it, is that he assumes that the reader of the Gospel understands Israelite geography. And all of us go, yes, I'm all over Israelite geography. You know, I eat and breathe this stuff. Um, Here's a little map for you. Um, You probably can't see that if you're right down the back or even where I am. But anyway, um, that's just this little snapshot of sort of Israel in the first century. circled right down the bottom there next to the Dead Sea. That's Jerusalem, you know, the kind of the capital of the area. Um, What we find is, right, um, up until this point, Jesus has been um, down south in Judea, so around sort of the capital of Jerusalem. Um, He's been to the west, you know, so the west coast where the Mediterranean is. He's spent some time in the east, so on the other side of the River Jordan. Uh, You can see that squiggly blue line connecting those two big pools of water. Um, He's been, so he's been south, he's been west, he's been east. And now for the first time, Jesus is in the upper regions of the historical area we know as Israel. He's in a place called Caesarea Philippi. And here in the upper extremities of Israel, before he starts the long walk back down to Jerusalem, Jesus asks this very pressing question of anyone who reads the Gospel of Mark. Chapter 8, verse 27. Have a look with me. Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. On the way, he asked them, who do people say I am? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. Now, it's interesting, right, at this point, right, that 
It seems like the crowds are obviously pretty impressed with Jesus. They think he's pretty good value, right? Um, they're high, they have highly complimentary opinions about who Jesus is. You know, some say he's John the Baptist, right? Which either means he's John the Baptist come back from the dead because he was beheaded you know, a few chapters earlier in the narrative. Or they think that the mantle of John the Baptist, you know, this famous prophetic figure, has now been sort of handed to Jesus. Others say he's Elijah. That's a pretty great compliment, right? He was like the chief of the prophets, super well known. Others think he's just one of the prophets, which, you know, like is a pretty good kind of compliment to pay. Our crowds today in the modern world are pretty complimentary of Jesus too, largely. Most Australians think that Jesus was a a great teacher, a great example. All of our Muslim neighbours believe that Jesus was was a great prophet. And secular social scientist, Professor Steve Skiena, he perhaps has paid Jesus one of the greatest compliments, suggesting that Jesus was the most influential figure in all of history. And you're going, who is Professor Skiena? Um, He's a... He's, I would call him a nerd, right? Um, he, um, he developed this computer algorithm which was able to search like every book that's ever been uploaded onto the internet and search for the occurrence of you know, names of people, famous people. Jesus is like streets ahead of everyone else. Like, you know, if Jesus is, yeah, he, I mean, Jesus appears so often in literature. And on the basis of that, um, Skiena, he's not, a, he's not a Christian, he's a secular social scientist. On the basis of what he's done, he says, Jesus is the most influential person in all of human history. All of these, right, ancient or modern, they're very complementary, but they're also misconceptions. You know, even a flattering misconception can still be a misconception because nothing compares to the reality of who Jesus really is. So in verse 29, Jesus presses home the point. Sure, the crowds have lovely things to say about who Jesus is, but look at 8.29. But what about you, Jesus asked? Who do you say I am? And Peter answered, you are the Messiah. And if this was a movie, right, the, the, the theme music would have been bubbling away in the background and then it would just start rising and rising. So as Peter says, you are the Messiah, you know, it hits like the high point, the crescendo. I don't know, you know, Leonardo DiCaprio on the front of the boat, you know, it's all beautiful and wonderful. Like, you know, the crescendo would have rise right up. We've known that, that Jesus is the Messiah from chapter one, verse one of the gospel, but none of the characters in the story at this point have identified that. But Peter declares, you are the Messiah and the music just soars and your heart is lifted. I want to say this, I want to say this though, this is not just the climax of Mark's gospel. It's actually the culmination of a thousand years of Jewish hopes and expectations. Here's a little diagram. So there's a diagram. Um, King David, thousand BC, right through to Jesus of Nazareth, Mark chapter 8, verse 29. See, God selected King David about a thousand years BC and anointed him with oil so that the Spirit of God fell on him in great power. And Jews have been waiting since that day for the real anointed one to come. Anointed one just means Messiah. And indeed, the word used there in 1 Samuel 16 
that David was anointed is the word Messiah. He was Messiah. In the Greek word, it is Christ. They just mean anointed one. So a thousand years BC, David is anointed. He's Messiahed. But we read in 2 Samuel 7 that God promised that one from David's line would be appointed by God, would come into the world, and he would sit on God's throne forever, rule eternally. And the Jews have been waiting for that descendant of David who would be messiahed forever. Hundreds of years later, you wind back, you know, forward a couple of hundred years and you come to Isaiah chapter 61, the first reading we had this morning. Um, Isaiah 61 says this, because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim, the spirit of the Lord is upon me to proclaim good news to the poor, sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives, release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour and the day of vengeance of our God and to comfort all who mourn. It's an enormous promise in ancient Israelite history that the Messiah would be anointed and do these things. There's all this expectation and we have it all recorded for us in the Bible, but let's just step out of the Bible for just a, a second or two There are actually texts outside of the Bible that tell us what Jews in Jesus' period were expecting out of their Messiah. Um, I'm going to read you some words from a poem. It's a poem written by a Pharisee um, in Jerusalem shortly after the Romans had entered and plundered um, Israel, shortly before the birth of Jesus. It's a great insight into the hopes and expectations of, of the ancient Jewish People. Hear these words. This is from the poem. Um, See, O Lord, and raise up for your people their king, the son of David, to rule over your servant Israel, O God. Undergird him with strength to destroy the unrighteous rulers, the Romans, uh, to purge Jerusalem of Gentiles, Romans, Greeks, Scythians, barbarians, who trample her to destruction, in wisdom and in righteousness, to drive out the sinners from the inheritance, to smash the arrogance of sinners like a potter's jar. There will be no unrighteousness, for all shall be holy, and their king shall be their Lord, Messiah. So this is what Jews are looking forward to, are hoping for, just before Jesus it comes into the picture. And it's actually essentially what Orthodox Jewish people still hope for and expect today in our world. So with all these biblical expectations, with these extra-biblical expectations, take another look at verse 29 and and hear how the, the theme comes to a crescendo in full volume. You are the Messiah. The crescendo is massive. So why in verse 30 then does Jesus warn them not to tell anyone? Well, the answer has to do with his mission. Our second point this morning, the mission of the Messiah. Because Jesus' mission is completely unlike the expectations of the Messiah that existed in his day, and it seems only when he'd been able to kind of clarify what his ministry and mission was about, that he hadn't come to conquer unrighteous Gentiles, he hadn't come to smash sinners of Jerusalem, that he'd actually come for something different. Only then would he allow the title Messiah to go public. Until then, it's like, don't tell anyone, just keep it quiet. Jesus hadn't come to conquer 
but to serve and to save. Have a look at verse 31. Jesus then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this, and then Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Now, I know you and I, most of us have been around Christian circles for a little while. We're kind of used to this story, right? We've probably read it multiple times. But I think it's appropriate that we spare a thought for Peter for just a minute or two. Peter's been raised with a military vision of the Messiah. He's got full marks, 100% for declaring Jesus as the Messiah. He can hear the rousing music in the background. And then Jesus says, don't tell anyone about this. Oh, and by the way, I'm going to die. And Peter, it's quite amazing, right? Peter then rebukes Jesus. Imagine if you were there. The text is really clear. What kind of a man in one breath declares Jesus the Messiah and then in the next breath takes him aside and says, you've actually got it wrong. Imagine that. But what happens next? Jesus' response is extraordinary. Now imagine how Peter must have felt as this bit, and this next little bit happened. Verse 33. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Here's the thing. Peter takes Jesus aside and rebukes him. It's amazing. And then Jesus turned. So Jesus physically turns his back on Peter, turns to his disciples, like turns, looks at his disciples and says, get behind me, Satan. Now, when the person you've just declared Messiah turns their back on you and calls you Satan, you probably know you're on the wrong track, right? You agree? I mean, this is about as in trouble theologically and spiritually as you can get. Um, trying to achieve God's kingdom by force, which is what Peter's culture and tribe told him to expect, is according to Jesus, satanic. I don't think I'm exaggerating. Sure, there have been times in history when Christians and Christianity has forgotten this, when it's sought to, to by force bring the kingdom of heaven onto earth, not nearly, by the way, as many times as popular culture would have us believe, but it has happened. You see, Jesus wrote a better and more beautiful tune, and it goes like this. Not smash your enemies and bring in the kingdom by force. Here's Jesus' song, Love Your Enemies and do good to those who hate you. And he took that song, that tune, all the way to the cross. It's true that Christians have not always sung that tune, love your enemies and do good to those who hate you. But we've got to distinguish Jesus' beautiful song from the sometimes terrible performance of his followers. Jesus came not to conquer sinners, but to die for them, to save them. That's the mission of the Messiah. And it has huge implications, right, for following this Messiah, third point. You see, Peter's misunderstanding of who the Messiah would be was so widespread that Jesus pauses in verse 34, 
moving from a private conversation with his disciples to a, a more public kind of conversation. Um, chapter 8, verse 34. Then Jesus called the crowd to him. I mean, imagine what Peter's thinking at this point, right? You know, Jesus is, uh, Peter, you know, Jesus, um, he's just, you know, Peter's just rebuked Jesus. Jesus has just turned him back on him. Jesus has called Peter Satan. I mean, Peter must be going, like, what's he going to do now? Like, what's he going to say about me to the crowd? Well, Jesus actually doesn't say anything about Peter, but he does correct Peter's mistake. Verse 34, then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? Jesus in this little moment, is contrasting two ways of following the Messiah. One way says that following the Messiah is about taking up arms and conquering and smashing sinners and all the unrighteous. And we know that was a a, a real and true expectation. And so the words there in verse 36, whoever wants to gain the whole world will forfeit their soul, has actually nothing to do with materialism. Jesus has plenty to say about materialism in other parts of the scriptures and the gospels, but not here. Gain the whole world is actually messianic imperialism. It's the desire of the first century Jew to conquer the peoples and establish the kingdom of God in this world. It's what Jesus was tempted to do in his 40-day wilderness retreat. The devil said, what did the devil say to Jesus? Worship me and I will give you the kingdoms of the world. And that's what Peter wants, but Jesus says no. Pursue that course, power, prestige and violence. You forfeit your soul as far as God's concerned. Strong words. And therefore, the words of verse 38 about not being ashamed of Jesus in this adulterous and sinful generation aren't so much about Christians being embarrassed about following Jesus in a secular, non-Christian culture, although that could be a secondary application. It's actually about the shame of saying you followed the crucified Messiah in a culture that prized power and violence and position and domination. Oh, I follow the crucified one. That's what it's about. See, the true path of the Messiah involves a cross. Verse 30, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me in loving their enemies, in suffering, even if it means a cross. And you do know, right, that within 35 years of Jesus saying these words, it meant a cross for literally thousands of first century Christians. Here's a picture. Again, a bit hard to see, but on the right-hand side is a a line of crosses and Christians being strung up on those crosses and on the left-hand side is, is sort of Emperor Nero and all his buddies kind of hanging out and having a party in the gardens of the emperor's kind of, you know, home. Um, yeah, in, in the 60s, right, in the 60s AD, 
Uh, Nero just had thousands of Christians crucified. Um, He also had hundreds of Christians kind of torn to shreds by dogs. And there's, there's heaps of reports, right? Nero was such an awful character that he would, he'd have you know, thousands of Christians, he doesn't like them very much, thousands of Christians strung up on crosses, just hanging there to die. And then when the sun went down, he'd light them up, set them on fire so they could act like lamps in the street or party lights at his sort of soirees. That's the, that's the reality. That's back in the first century AD. Here's another picture. You might remember this. It's about five years ago, February 2015. 21 Christian men, Coptic Christians, were um, beheaded by ISIS militants on a beach. The, that Im- like those sort of images and the, the video that was sort of shot by ISIS went viral. It was all over social media and the internet and things like that. What you may not know is that the brother of two of the murdered men was interviewed on Egyptian TV. Um, His name was Bashir. The interviewer asked Bashir how he was feeling and how the people of his village were feeling. So over, over half the men that were murdered on that day were from one village. So the interviewer asked him, you know, how how are you feeling? And how are the members of your village feeling? And Bashir said he thanked Isis. On the one hand, he said, I thank Isis for sending my brothers into the kingdom of heaven. And on the other hand, I thank Isis, listen to this, for leaving the audio on their propaganda video that went viral around the world because my brothers and the others can be heard declaring their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. I want to thank ISIS for allowing their proclamation of their love for Jesus to be sent around the world. He said his brothers Bishoy and Samuel were, quote, a badge of honour to Christianity. Since the Roman era, Christians have been martyred and have learned to handle everything that comes our way. He went on, this experience only makes us stronger in our faith because the Bible tells us to love our enemies and bless those who curse us. The interviewer then said, but what if, you know, Bashir, what if you saw an ISIS member on the street? How would you respond? Bashir, without delay or hesitation said, oh, my mother just today told me that if she saw an ISIS member on the street, she'd invite him home for a meal. I mean, you hear that, right? And it's just, I don't know, desperately sad and crushing on one hand, but spectacularly beautiful and gospel-centered on the other. Because that's what singing the tune of Jesus Christ sounds like. Only when we deny ourselves and take up our cross will we look like the gospel that we proclaim to others. We've looked at the identity of the Messiah. We've looked at the mission of the Messiah. We've thought a little bit about what it means to follow the Messiah. But there's a question that arises from this stuff, right? At least one for the ancient reader, perhaps for you as well. I mean, is all of this consistent with the revelation of God throughout the Old Testament, the law and the prophets? Because it sounds very strange. And actually, that's what the odd scene at the beginning of chapter 9 
is really all about, my final point, the centrality of Jesus. Do you notice in Mark chapter 9, verse 2, there's that little expression, after six days? Um, now, this is quite an odd transition point in Mark's gospel. Plenty of New Testament scholars kind of zero in on it and write PhDs about it. But Mark has deliberately connected this story, the story of the transfiguration of Jesus, with the story that comes, all that comes before. Jesus has just said that the kingdom will only come through the suffering of the Messiah. Then what happens next, after six days, functions as a verification of all that Jesus has just said. That this is what the law and the prophets have always said. The Old Testament. So you know the story, right? Peter, James and John, key disciples, they go up on a mountain with Jesus and they experience what we would sort of see as like a vision And in chapter 9, verse 3, we're told that Jesus went very white. Um, I like the description of how white Jesus' clothes went. What did it say? Whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. I think that's pretty cool how they sort of grasp for the colour of white. I don't know, Dulux, natural white, Dulux, vivid white. I don't know. Then suddenly, right, he was white. Then suddenly they spot Moses and Elijah. How do they know it was them? That's a good question, but it was them. And Peter makes a bit of a fool of himself, verses 5 to 6, which is lovely. Lovely when you think that Mark's gospel is very likely the testimony of Peter written down by Mark. See, all throughout Mark, you get these dumb statements that Peter makes all the time. Um, So we can only conclude, right, this is how Peter just kind of told the story. It's really lovely. You know, Peter, Peter's beautiful. Right? I love Peter. I feel like I'm Peter. Um, Peter said, you know, oh man, guess what, guys? I nailed, I nailed that Jesus was the Messiah. And then I rebuked him. Can you believe I did that? And then he turned his back on me. And then he called me Satan. Then he called the crowd. I don't know what he was going to say at that point when he called the crowd. Then we were up this mountain and I didn't know what to say. I hate silences. I just don't know what to do. So I stupidly suggested that we build some shelters for Moses and Elijah and Jesus while we kind of hang out here. Isn't it beautiful? And even in the brackets, Mark has included that he did not know what to say. Oh, it's beautiful. Peter was just so bamboozled by what he saw, he just makes a stupid comment. Um, I can relate, maybe you can too. Incidentally, right, we we have Peter's own testimony about this event recorded for us in the second letter he wrote in the New Testament to Peter chapter one, which is striking. However, um, we miss the point of this narrative if we think it's just like a sound and light show um, to tell us that Jesus is really special. No. The key to understanding this really weird story is to notice who's on the mountain. And who is it? It's not Abraham and David. Although, you know, if you're a Bible reader and you've been around a while, you go, they sound like pretty good characters to be there. It's not Abraham and David. It's not Noah and Isaiah. They'd be pretty reasonable characters to sort of be up there too. It's Moses and Elijah on the mountain. And in that moment, whilst Moses and Elijah are here, are there, and Peter has his rush of blood to his head or his foot and mouth issue, a voice booms from heaven. Verse 7, this is my son whom I love. Listen to him. And then Moses and Elijah are gone. Vision over. 
When you remember that for ancient Jews and Jews today, that the, what we call the Old Testament, Jews call the Law and the Prophets, this passage has massive implications. You see, Moses was the great lawgiver and Elijah was the chief of the prophets. So having Moses and Elijah there testifying to Jesus, witnessing the divine voice saying, listen to him and then disappearing, tells us that Jesus is what the law and the prophets were all about. That's what this narrative is saying, brothers and sisters. The two pillars of Jewish scripture, Moses representing the law, Elijah the prophets, point forward to Jesus. Regardless of what the first century expectations were of Jews about their Messiah, the divine plan throughout the law, throughout the prophets, was that the Messiah would suffer, would die and rise again. Why? For the salvation of sinners from every nation. And frankly, that has to be the climax. For anyone who studies the Old Testament comes away, you've got to come away with one theme. God's incredible grace and mercy towards sinful and faithless Israel. That's the theme of the Old Testament, right? Where God's people fail, God's love prevails. So it shouldn't surprise us that all the law and the prophets point forward to a Messiah who would not come to conquer sinners, but would come into the world in love to suffer for and to save sinners. Jesus is the crescendo. You know, when I was prepping this talk, I was going to end after point three. You know, identity of the Messiah, mission of the Messiah. What does it look like to follow the Messiah? I was going to land there. That was what my gut was telling me. And you're thinking, that was a good plan, Jacko. That was a good plan. End at point three. End at point three. Go with your gut next time, Jacko. You know, always go with your gut. I was going to end there. It's going to be powerful. It's going to be powerful. I was planning to drive home the idea, you know, following the Messiah. Deny yourself. Take up your cross. Follow me. Rah, rah. It's going to leave you with the story of Bashir. Tears. Move. Love for your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. But it's not at the centre of the gospel. We are not at the centre of the gospel. It's not about us. It's about Jesus. It's about the Christ. And I kid you not, the central message of this central passage in Mark's gospel, a foundational document of the Christian faith, are the words of Mark chapter 9, verse 7. This is my son. Listen to him. And I can't think of a better way, brothers and sisters, not just to start Mark chapter 9 through to 16, our new teaching series, but I can't think of a better way for us to kind of start 2021 than with the encouragement of Mark, the divine word of the Father over the Son. This is my son. Listen to him. I can't think of a better way to start 2021 than with that word. Listen to him. Listen to Jesus. Because when we, like Peter, find that our culture is shaping our expectations of faith, listen to him. When we find ourselves in 2021 grasping for power and prestige, 
rather than humble service, listen to him. When we find, if you're like me, that our conscience doesn't quite let us believe that our sins are forgiven through faith in the death of Jesus, the Messiah, don't listen to your conscience. Listen to him. When we're tempted to be disloyal in life, listen to him. And when following Jesus just feels too hard, when you feel like you're just losing, listen to him. Listen to him. Let's pray. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, amidst all the things that have been said today, we ask that by your spirit you would take what is good and true and, Father, apply it to our lives. We do pray that we'd learn the lessons of Peter. We pray that we would marvel and be encouraged by the example of our Coptic brothers and sisters. Lord, we do stop and pray right now for all those who, around the world, millions of our brothers and sisters in Christ who face persecution for following you. How we pray that you might grant them resolve and faith. Father, I pray that you'd help me as a preacher and everyone in this building this morning and whoever might be online. Help us to listen to the one you've sent as Saviour and Lord, the Servant King. Father, may we be people who listen to Jesus when our culture is causing us to question, when we find ourselves grasping for power, when our consciences won't let us believe that we are right with you through faith in Jesus, when we're tempted to be disloyal to you, Father. And Father, help us to listen to Jesus when following you is hard, when it feels like we're just losing. Help us to listen to Jesus. And we ask it in his name. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from City Light Church, North Adelaide. We hope you found it helpful and we'd love for you to share this message with others. For more great content, more information about City Light Church, or to donate to the work of City Light Church, North Adelaide, visit us at citylight.church slash North Adelaide.